We're going to read 13 to 25. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Join me in prayer. Holy Spirit, we come now to you and ask for your help this morning. Your word tells us that unless you illuminate our heart, illuminate our minds, we cannot understand the things of God. It's our desire this morning to understand the things of God, to know you better, Lord. And so I'm asking for your help this morning for all of us, all of us together in this room, standing, sitting, may we receive from you today so that our hearts would be changed. Do this for your son's glory in our lives, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, years ago, my family and I uh, went to visit some extended family, and while we were visiting with them, we were invited to attend the Lord's Day gathering at the church that they were attending, and we uh, said, of course, we would go with them, and so we went. When we arrived, we arrived at a very large campus. And we found a seat in a sanctuary building in an auditorium that was crowded to the brim. We were lucky to find a seat, I guess. We sat down, and before long, the lights dimmed, and a band began to play. We were then led in something like seven or eight or or nine songs. The people around us were very enthusiastic in their worship. They raised their hands, they sang. You might say there was an exuberant display of emotional response. Then at one point, we were all instructed to sit down, and a group of five or six ladies or so took the stage, 
each holding a different set of color-coordinated flags. We sat down, and as we were sitting, rather, a soloist began to sing, and the ladies performed a, a synchronized dance routine. The song ended, and the meeting, meeting went on. And at some point, I think a sermon was preached. And I say I think because I don't actually remember if a sermon was preached that day. Now, friends, there, there are dozens of ways that a church can worship the Lord and still be biblically faithful churches. There are high churches that are very relaxed, very calm, very stiff, very sober, very thoughtful, very quiet in their worship. There are quite the opposite churches, very lively, very exuberant churches where there's a lot of noise, a lot of activity, a lot of commotion, a lot of excitement going on. I grew up in a church like that, by the way, a very exuberant church. And friends, I hesitated to start this way because we live in such a consumer-driven society, and the last thing that I want to do is come up here and convey the idea that the local church's worship is about the preference of the worshipers. But I bring this up because our question must always be, how does God want to be worshipped? And I share about this experience to say that even though the people in that particular church were sincere, and maybe you've belonged to a church like this, maybe you belong to a church like that now, the people were sincere, but we remember little about that time except for the stuff that was exciting, the things that were maybe a little odd to us, things that were actually repelling to us. And I remember we left that place that day and we did not have our affections for Christ stirred. I only remember the oddness of our time there. Again, in all likelihood, genuine worship was taking place that day in the lives of those people. But we were in the position of outsiders. We felt like outsiders and we found it hard to add our amen to what was going on. Now, odd and repelling are two words that similarly describe the Lord's Day gathering in the church in first century Corinth. This was a church that had very vibrant worship gatherings. This is a church where the full range of the spiritual gifts were being manifested in that place. But you see, friends, Paul took issue with them. He took issue with them. And here, for the first time, Paul introduces the idea that their worship is actually an evangelistic device. Their worship serves either to attract people to Christ or repel them from him. You see, dear ones, the Bible is not only concerned with the fact that we gather regularly for worship. The Bible does tell us to do this. But it's not only concerned with the fact that we gather regularly for worship. The Bible is concerned with the form that our worship takes. Here in verses 13 to 25, Paul is concerned that this church's corporate worship, which includes the exercise of the charismata, the spiritual gifts, simultaneously bring praise to God 
but also convey a clear message about God and his nature and his being. Friends, this is faithful public worship if a church accomplishes this when it gathers. And if it is, if it does, it will produce conviction. It will produce confession. The Holy Spirit will illumine the hearts. And most of all, the glory that is owed to God will be given to him. But if it's unfaithful, it can lead ultimately to confusion about who God is. And friends, by the way, the marginalization of those who are visiting, who are not familiar with this type of worship. The title of this sermon, if you're taking notes, is Public Worship That Pleases God. Public Worship That Pleases God. When I say public, I'm referring to the gathered church. The Bible has much to say about how we ought to worship when we're gathered together, but today we're going to look at just two aspects of what we'll call biblically faithful worship, which Paul outlines in our text. And I haven't done this in a while, but I want to give you a sermon in a sentence. This is the whole sermon condensed into one sentence, if it just helps you better understand where we're going. It is that public worship that pleases God is both comprehensible and compelling. Public worship that pleases God is both comprehensible and compelling. So let's work through these together. The first, our worship should be comprehensible, intelligible, understandable. Starting in verse 13, picking up from verse 12, Paul said back there, now friends, if you're going to pursue the spiritual gifts, pursue the charismata, let it be for the building up of the church. The J.B. Phillips paraphrase captures Paul's sentiment very well. He says, so with yourselves, verse 12, since you are so eager to possess spiritual gifts, concentrate your ambition upon receiving those which make for the real growth of your church. Spiritual gifts, dear ones, are God's grace to strengthen the local body, to flower and to bear fruit until what Ephesians 4 says happens, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity. This maturity is why God gives his gifts to the church. He gives gifts either in the form of people, Paul talks about that in Ephesians 4, or divine enabling, spiritual gifts, so that as we worship together as a response to the salvation that God has accomplished for us in Christ, we as a church are built up. But friends, Paul's argument has been, if we're not using our gifts in the public gathering in such a way as we're pursuing the good of those around us, then we're nothing. That's what chapter 13 was all about. And so Paul says, for this reason, this is why our worship should be intelligible. The local church ought to be able to participate in, not only observe what's going on, not only observe its collective worship. Have you ever been a part of a gathering where all you're able to do is observe? You're not able to participate in. And I get, sometimes there's songs you don't know. Maybe you didn't know any of the songs that we sang today. Those are all new, by the way. I only knew one of them. 
those are songs you don't know, so it's hard to kind of participate. It's kind of hard to sing along, and you're just an observer. Paul's concerned that we be participants in the church's worship. But this was an issue in Corinth. Because the dear members of that church there believe that tongue speaking in the Greek glossolalia, maybe you've heard that term, glossolalia, their tongue speaking was proof of their genuine worship. And there's a lot of churches in our world today that believe tongue speaking is the proof of true spirituality. As we saw last week, spirit-given tongues are languages. Chapter 14, verse 2 says that no one understands. New Testament scholar Anthony Thistleton suggests that tongues are the inarticulate utterance of divine mysteries akin to the groaning and sighing in Romans 8.26 that springs up from pre-conscious depths where the spirit is at work, but the conscious mind can scarcely comprehend it. Now, if you were to read this section just quickly, you might get the impression that Paul was speaking against the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. Paul is not doing that. In fact, he says here in verses 13 to 19 that tongues are an unintelligible form of both prayer and praise. One of the blessings or the benefits of tongues, Paul says, is that it enables the the recipient to, to pray and praise when he or she doesn't know how to pray and praise. The Spirit instead prays through and for them. Paul says in verse 14, When I pray in my tongue, a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. We saw again back in chapter 14, verse 2, that the one who speaks in a Holy Spirit-given tongue speaks not to men but to God. So tongues is also a form of prayer. It's divine communication. Now, friends, just as an aside, no matter how a tongue might be strange to the hearer, it's pleasing to God when it's exercised rightly. Why? It's a gift of the Spirit. Now, I've heard people all the time make fun of tongues, mock tongues, imitating tongues. But if I could just suggest to you for a second, we would consider it mockery to joke about spiritual truths in our native tongue of English. We ought to think twice about mocking spiritual truths conveyed in an unknown tongue. Paul also speaks here of praising and giving thanks with his spirit apart from the mind. In other words, he's he's offering up something to God through the agency of God's spirit, but he doesn't know exactly what he's saying. Sure, his spirit is praying, but it doesn't benefit his mind. And now this is where we get to Paul's point in this chapter, this section. If the Corinthians are in the gathered assembly at worship and they're compelled to offer up a a spirit-given, unintelligible tongue, Paul says that it ought to be immediately followed by a conscious prayer for the Spirit's help to interpret what was said. Why? Who does Paul have in mind here? Well, he tells us in verses 16 and 17. He says, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. So here Paul refers to the one who's in the position of an outsider. What's that? Well, in the original, that word there, outsider, means an amateur someone who's unlearned, someone who's inexperienced. This is someone who is likely a believer in Jesus, but is maybe maybe someone who doesn't have the gift of of tongue speaking or is unfamiliar with this gift. 
So you can imagine for a second the scenario going on in the church in Corinth. Here you had a church full of men, full of women, who were all about the spectacular, that which was exuberant and exciting. A Lord's Day gathering in Corinth was probably quite a lot of fun. But friends, fun is not what Paul's after. The Lord's Day gathering should, as much as is in the worshipers present, provide a context for the unhindered praise of God for all that he's done in Christ, which will always lead to our encouragement, which will always lead to the upbuilding of the body, friends. And a good gauge of the genuineness of a church's worship is its accessibility to all true believers, whether or not they have a certain spiritual gift. Friends, doesn't this happen all the time in the church? Maybe, maybe you're sitting there. How many times have we been sitting there? Maybe kind of during a song or during a sermon, we're kind of dozing off into some train of thought. And a brother or sister nearby is listening intently. And they respond to a, a spoken word with a hearty amen. And it shakes us up out of our, our days, and it provokes us to listen again. Friends, this is why Paul says in the church, I'd rather speak five words in Greek, which was their language, five words that instruct you, rather than get up there and preach a three and a half hour long sermon in a tongue you don't understand. D.A. Carson summarizes this for us. Whatever the place for a profound personal experience and corporate emotional experience, the assembled church is a place for intelligibility. Our God is a thinking, speaking God. And if we will know him, we must learn to think his thoughts after him. I am not surreptitiously or sneakily invalidating what Paul has refused to invalidate. I am merely trying to reflect this conviction that edification in the church depends utterly on intelligibility, understanding, coherence. Both charismatic and non-charismatic churches need to be reminded of this truth again and again. So what does Paul conclude then as the right way forward for the church, for us? He tells us in verse 15, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Friends, what's Paul calling for here? Maybe as a point of, of application, he's calling for something that would benefit both continuationists and cessationists alike. A continuationist is a person who believes that the remarkable gifts are still for today. A cessationist is a person who believes the remarkable gifts are not for today. What's Paul calling for? Paul is calling for a kind of worship that engages both the mind and the emotions both together. Did you know that? Did you know this is the kind of worship that Jesus made possible through the giving of the Holy Spirit? Remember his conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4? Here was a Samaritan woman, a religious outcast according to the Jews, who was hung up on where the proper place of worship actually was. 
And so in response, Jesus said in verse 21, we'll put this on the screen for you, John 4, 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Then in verse 23, he says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Samaritans were known for their emotionalism in worship, but they were lacking in scripturally faithful truth to inform it. The Jews were known for their coolness and their resignation in their worship, but they were lacking in the emotional warmth to fuel it. So Jesus here comes along, and he says, neither of these forms of worship by themselves are pleasing to God. True worship engages both the spirit, the heart, the seed of one's emotions, and the mind, which is fed by biblical truths about God. Friends, you're not really worshiping otherwise. Now, in every church, both groups of people are represented, aren't they? You have mind people and you have spirit people. People that are intellectually driven and people that are emotionally driven. The heart people, the heart people typically want to be moved by the music. They want the spirit to carry them away. They want to, they want to feel something while they gather. But so often if you're only a spirit or a heart person, there is oftentimes a, a, a lack of desire to be truly fed. You're tempted to want just a taste. You're tempted to want something just to whet the appetite. You, you, you want something like cotton candy, but don't care if you eat the bread of the word. You want a dessert, not a full meal with all the healthy items that are hard to eat like vegetables. We don't want to eat those things. We just want something that tastes good. But then there are the mind people. We don't get off the hook if you're that person. These are the ones that have a very neat theological system. They have a sense of safety and pride in their knowledge, but they're like stiff boards. They're so stuck. There's no room for anything out of the ordinary. Their doctrine is down pat, but their spirit is flat. Paul says, Jesus says, pray and sing with both the mind and the spirit. Let your prayers and songs be filled with Bible so that there's something substantial in them to feed your affections for Christ so that you're able to respond accordingly with joy and with gratitude. Yes, even a tear if it will come. Dear ones, there should be nothing humdrum about our worship. Our salvation is a miracle. If you've been born again, you have been raised to new life. You were once dead and you are now alive. That's a miracle. But it shouldn't be chaotic either. That's why we choose to sing songs that give sound instruction for the mind so that we can praise God rightly, but also the fuel the spirit so that we can praise God richly. That's why when a word of prophecy is shared, it's not a, an interruption to what's already being spoken on another microphone. There's a designated moment for that. It's been vetted by a pastor. It's weighed by a pastor 
first. And when this happens, even outsiders, even outsiders with a different church background can add their amen. So public worship that glorifies God, that pleases God, is comprehensible. Secondly, worship that glorifies God, pleases God, is compelling, compelling. Paul now switches gears. In verses 20 to 22, he's, he's speaking almost polemically, kind of critically toward the Corinthian church, not against tongue speaking, but against the way in which they're using the gift. Now, notice that he says brothers here. He, he softens his critique by the, the use of the word brother. He wants them to feel his affection for them. Paul is often criticized for being an angry apostle. He's not an angry apostle. He loves these brothers and sisters, but clearly this is needed rebuke. He's already told them in chapter 3, 1 through 3, that their strife, their discord was evidence of their spiritual immaturity. Paul says, I've had to come to you as infants in the word, not mature people in the word. And once again, in chapter 14, verse 20, he he needs to warn against this childishness, specifically with, with, with regard to the way they think about the gathered church in worship. Paul says it's immature, it's childish to use the gifts that God has given you to impart grace Instead, to splinter the church or divide, put up walls and relationships. So he says, when it comes to evil, be infants. There's a difference, friends, between, between being childlike and childish. And, and there are practices and habits, he says to these brothers and sisters, that you've taken up that don't serve to bring benefit to the body. You need a shift in your mindset. You need to think like a mature person. Friends, a church's leadership must ever be evaluating, ever be thinking, how does the way in which we gather help or hinder our goal of making much of Jesus? We must always be asking, is our liturgy, our worship confusing or is it clarifying? Does it facilitate meditation on the cross and therefore stir up awe and confession and repentance Or does it rather amuse or entertain, providing us with little sustenance on which our souls can feed? Friends, it was was Augustine who famously wrote in his confessions, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. And there are a lot of Christians today that are restless because they're childish in their thinking. They're okay with a cursory knowledge of God. A little dose of religion here or there. A running to Christ because he's a little stronger than the situation that I'm facing right now. But they never really grow to maturity. Often these either don't belong to a church at all, so they're cut off from a community of fellow strugglers growing in Jesus together, or they attend a church where all they're fed is cotton candy, self-help for finances or relationships, but never really introduced to the God who demands their obeisance. 
which he has made possible through the cross. Sadly, the Corinthians were more interested in tasty excitability in the form of widespread tongue speaking. They were parading themselves about, but their gatherings were less about declaring the message of salvation and more about propagating a message of self. And so Paul goes here for the jugular. And he says there's actually another purpose for tongues that goes beyond the scope of private prayer and praise. But to explain what it is, he has to go back to the Old Testament. And so in verse 21, Paul loosely cites Isaiah 28. He says, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So, So what is that all about? Well, in Isaiah 28, the strange tongues, if you go back and read Isaiah chapter 28, the strange tongues are a reference to the invading Assyrian army. The Assyrian army was the the military, the country was the biggest nation in the world, the most powerful nation in the world in those days. And Isaiah says that they were coming for the people of God, God was bringing down judgment on them. You see, the people of Israel had spent so long listening to the prophets speak warning in their language, but very little time hearing what the message was. So the clear call to repent was drowned out by the rebellion. And God said, now all you're going to hear is the battle cry of a foreign nation bringing down my judgment on you. So in this sense, tongues in ancient Israel became a sign to unbelieving Jews, people who would not listen to the Lord's warning, people who claim to be his but are actually outsiders. Now in Corinth, the church believed that tongues were a sign of God's presence. And in one sense, they really are. But to unbelievers, people whose ears are closed off from the gospel call, it's a warning. It's a sign. All they hear is nonsense. And so their ears remain closed, and they remain in their sin under God's wrath. To give you a modern analogy, if an investment banker sits down with a nine-year-old boy, we'll call him Max, and he tries to explain to Max Internal Revenue Code Section 401k, that nine-year-old is going to hear nothing but unintelligible gibberish. He's going to leave the conversation confused, and he will remain an ignorant nine-year-old boy in the matter of saving for retirement. See, friends, there's there's an evangelistic necessity for the church's worship to be intelligible, to be compelling. Worship that does not convict, that does not call to account, does not expose the sinfulness of sin, and thus the need for the only Savior for sin, that kind of worship is madness. David Garland, the commentator, summarizes this for us. He says, The citation from Isaiah makes it clear that tongues are not a saving sign, but a sign of retribution. They do not stimulate belief, but instead seal unbelief. In jeering at the simple message of the cross, the unbelievers in the Corinthian setting are like, are like Isaiah's nemeses. They find the message of Christ crucified to be utter foolishness. 
Nevertheless, the simple message is the only message that will bring about their repentance. Do you see why Paul is so concerned that prophecy be the gift that they desire? Paul says in verse 22b, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. What does he mean there? Well, all throughout salvation history, friends, there has always been a very small remnant of true believers who benefited from the prophet's warnings. If they were straying, they were convicted by that warning. But for them, prophecy wasn't a sign of God's judgment. It was a sign of God's mercy. Let's go back to nine-year-old Max for a second. If that same investment banker sits down with him and he shows him the value of preparing for the future, starting as early as he possibly can, showing him the value of money, there's value to money, he will leave there potentially inspired. He may even go look for ways to save. Maybe he'll open up a lemonade stand and save his money for the future. Why? Because the message was compelling. It wasn't odd or repelling. It was compelling. Friends, Paul says that public worship in the gathered church ought to be this way. It ought to be as convincing and persuasive as possible. It ought not be showy or silly, but serious and sobering, portraying truths about God that search the depths of the heart. The New Testament gift of prophecy, friends, does that as it operates in the Lord's Day gathering. If a local church will not despise prophecy, but rather if all prophesy, Verse 24, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he will be convicted by all. He will be called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Dear ones, can outsiders and unbelievers say this about your church? Is our worship a sign not of God's judgment. Not because it's incomprehensible, but of his mercy. Do we have in us, after, after we've listened to sermon after sermon in this section, has God been giving you and me a desire for spiritual gifts so that when we actually come together, and our friends and neighbors visit on a Sunday that contrary to all expectations, they are stunned to discover that God is actually here? The God of the universe dwells in this people? John Chrysostom in the 4th century wrote that the purpose of worship is not to astonish, but to bring people to a sense of, of wonder. It's for helping people see by the work of the Spirit that they're in the presence of God so that at the end of the day, they cry out with Isaiah, woe is me, I am unclean, and I am a man of unclean lips. In closing, I, I, I've told this story before, but I think it's worth retelling. Perhaps some of you have heard of the, the famous conversion story of Charles Spurgeon Charles Spurgeon was one of the most effective preachers of the last 200 years. Talk about a gift to the church. 
that we still benefit from today. His conversion story is maybe one of the most well-known in the recent couple of centuries. But I want to retell it for you. Charles Spurgeon was 15 years old when the Spirit of God got a hold of his heart and changed him, converted him, gave him new life. Prior to that day, for 15 years, Charlie, I call him Charlie, lived under the weight of God's law. He once said in a sermon, the law informed me that I was cursed unless I continued in all the things that were written written in the book of the law, so that if I had not committed one sin, that made no difference if I had committed another sin, for I was still under the curse. He went on, even if I kept the law perfectly and kept it for 10, 20, or 30 years without a fault, yet if at the end of that time I should then break it, I must suffer its dread penalty. So I saw that I was shut up under the law. I had hoped to escape this way or that way or some other way. Was I not christened as a child, he asks? Had I not been taken to a place of worship all my life? Had I not been brought up to say my prayers regularly? Had I not been an honest, upright, moral youth? Was this all for nothing? Nothing said the law, as it drew its sword of fire. So there was no rest for my spirit, no, not even for a moment. What was I to do? I was in the custody of the one that showed no mercy whatever, for Moses never said mercy. The law has nothing to do with mercy. That comes from another mouth. So the young Charles was determined to visit every congregation in Colchester in East England to find someone who would tell him where he might find relief from the condemnation of the law. And so on Sunday morning, January 6th, 1850, he set out to go to another church. But the snow and the sleet were so heavy that morning that he turned down a side Street and happened and stumbled into the primitive Methodist church. Never been there before. He walked in to about a dozen people in there, wet from the snow. Even the minister that day didn't show up because of the weather. And he sat down. And into that pulpit climbed a thin looking man. A shoemaker or a tailor, Spurgeon never found out who he was. He announced his text in Isaiah 45, 22, which says this, Look to me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Spurgeon recounts that moment. He had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. And there was nothing needed by me, at any rate, except his text. For about 10 minutes or so, he focused on the word look, and then he stopped, and he pointed to where the young Charles was sitting under the gallery, and he called him out from the pulpit. Would you guys give me permission to do that? No, I'm just kidding. He called him out from the pulpit, and he said, that man there looks 
very miserable. And he shouted, as only I think a primitive Methodist can, says Charles, look, look, young man, look now. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. It is Christ that speaks. I am in the garden in an agony, pouring out my soul unto death. I am on the tree, dying for sinners. Look to me. I rise again. Look to me. I ascend into heaven. Look to me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Charles says, and I did look. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which alone looks to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Simple. Powerful. Probably not even prophetic. But comprehensible and compelling. And in a moment, the Spirit of God took this simple, simple English command to look given by an unknown shoemaker to disclose the secrets of Charles Spurgeon's heart where he then fell on his face and he worshiped God. Loved ones, a great responsibility lies on all of us. This text and Charles Spurgeon's story proves that one doesn't need to be a professional preacher to be used mightily by God in the public gathering. Don't think for a second that because you come here week after week and look at this guy talk back at you that you're somehow a detached observer. You are a participant this text implies that every believer is actively involved in public worship because the once foolish message has become to you the only message. And friends, if we're willing to open our mouths, even if we're a janitor or an intern on the lowest rung of the corporate ladder, guess what? The Spirit will be pleased to fill it. So friends, when we come to this place, do we pray for the higher gifts, especially that we may prophesy? Do we pray that God might use us to reach out our hand to pray for someone so they could experience healing? Do we pray for the gift of faith so that we can do that? Do we pray for the working of miracles? Do we pray for the utterance of wisdom or knowledge? Not so visitors can say, wow, that, there's something special about that guy. No, so that they would be introduced to the God of all grace who alone can transform their heart. Friends, will we sometimes say or do things that are odd or repelling in front of our unbelieving friends? Absolutely. Don't ever go into preaching, trust me, 
every Sunday. What in the world did I say that for? Odd. We're always going to be that way because we are human. We are sinful to the core. The Bible says that when the church is gathered and we pursue the greater charismata, that environment is the place where the Spirit is pleased to work. In that place, God is not hidden behind a parade. No, he's front and center in the midst of his people. We're now going to have a chance to respond to the preaching of God's word at another place where God is front and center to his people at the Lord's table. So Aaron, if you would please come and lead us in this meal.